Hi, everybody. It's Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. And joining us today, I have the pleasure of having a returning guest, Anthony Canilio, who is the Chief Executive Officer at New Lake Capital Partners. Welcome aboard, Anthony. Great to be back with you, Richard. Yeah, it's been uh, been about a year since you and I chatted. And, you know, your, your business, which is a REIT, effectively, is been growing and developing. And you had some really exciting news uh, that came out recently. But the market's changed tremendously in so many ways. How has that affected your your approach and your decision-making process? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It really has changed uh, significantly over the course of the last 12 to 18 months. Um, and it's it's changed us in a number of ways. You know, first off, we feel um, that we're in a great position as a company because we have a great portfolio, in our opinion. Um, we have nearly $100 million. We've got $90 million of dry powder that we're looking to put to work, and capital in this environment is key. Um, strong cash flow to our business. We recently announced our first quarter dividend. Um, and so, you know, a lot of real positives, but what's changed so much over the last year is this environment that we invest into this cannabis, right. right? Also the economic environment with inflation, having an impact on sales with some of these specific dynamics within the industry, impacting operators in in a significant way, it's yep. caused us to become, um, I don't want to say, uh, better underwriters, but really more cautious in where we look to take risk, because in any investing business, there's an element of risk. And yep. so for us, you know, we believe that our focus on limited license jurisdictions has, has served us really well. So we continue to stay focused on the limited license jurisdictions because we think they'll perform the best. Right. Um, but we really are just being much more cautious. In now we perform the best. Do you mean... Do you mean that from the perspective of they're going to give you the best overall return or the great most secure potential investment for you or or which aspect do you mean because it's going to mean different things to different people I think it's both I think that from a uh from an operating perspective if you're in a jurisdiction that has less competition because there's limited number of licenses yeah. you're just bound to get better margins and we see that um really across the landscape if you look at the margins that Operators are getting in Colorado, California, Michigan, Oregon, states like that versus the limited license jurisdictions, such as in Illinois uh, or even a Pennsylvania, where there's been a lot of noise about price compression there. But you're still looking at the, you know, anywhere from eighteen hundred to two thousand dollars a pound versus California, where you're, you know, I've seen reports of it being five hundred dollars a pound. So you get better margin opportunities in those limited license jurisdictions. Right. And of course, that flows all the way through the business. Exactly. It's a better credit profile. So when you're looking at these businesses and the ones you're cho you're choosing to participate with, what are the most attractive facets today? We underwrite three primary aspects of the business. We underwrite um, the jurisdiction that we just talked about, focusing on limited license jurisdictions. We underwrite the property. We underwrite the operator. Um, and so when we look at the property, we look at not only its alternative use from cannabis, but we look at its cannabis use. And specifically, we look at the EBITDA, that is EBITDA plus rent. We look at what type of cash flow can that property generate um, for a tenant? Because if our tenant, if we get wrong on the tenant analysis and our tenant can't operate out of that, is that a facility that someone else can operate and make money out of? Right. Um, and so if you have a very high EBITDA, and we disclose this in our investor presentation, we have a very high EBITDA 
coverage ratio on our industrial and retail properties relative to what you see in other um, typical non-cannabis uh, retail and industrial sectors. Right. Um, and so we look at that. And then on the operator side, of course, it's about the financials and what does the debt stack look like? What does the maturity profile of that look like? What does their cash flow look like? What is the cash position? But also importantly, does this management team have what it takes to be able to raise capital, raise institutional capital, be able to negotiate with um, with investors to the extent that they can't raise capital and they have maturities coming uh, uh, coming up in the near term. So it takes a deft hand to manage through this uh, environment in the cannabis world. And so we're looking for management teams that have those types of capabilities. Right, because I mean, you focus on the, the property side, the operator still has to be well capitalized on the other. What do you look for in an operator in terms of capitalization before you'll participate? I mean, yeah. you may commit pending the fact that they raise the other money or how do you how do you manage that? Yeah, we, we could do that. We could commit pending that they raise capital. We'd like to focus on folks that have an established track record in the industry. Right. Um, and if they're not generating free cash flow today, they have a line of sight to generating free cash flow from their business and a rational business plan to get there. And we all have, in this industry have seen business plans that look like a hockey stick and have some wild assumptions to getting cash flow positive maybe in the next two or three quarters. But really understanding this industry allows us and having having number of people within our management team and board that really understand this industry from the inside allows us to be able to look at those projections, scrutinize them appropriately, and come up with a judgment if we think that they're realistic and be able to achieve those objectives. Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. And you know, you mentioned EBIT Dar. I'm going to cycle back to that um, now. And when you looked at the businesses a year, two years, three years ago, um, did you focus on EBITDA, or has that now become something a bit more recent in the addition to your stable of how you look at businesses because there's been a bit of a softening in property prices in so many areas? Yeah, we have, uh, we've always focused on it. It's always been a core element of uh, understanding these businesses, but beyond just incorporating EBITDA, when we look at um, modeling out what we expected for the, the cash flow profiles of these properties, mm -hmm. we always assumed an element of price compression. I mean, it just made sense. This, yep. this wasn't a surprise that it's we were- It's been overdue. Right? right. It's, it's any market that has uh, high growth will see increasing competition and we'll go through these periods of mis, uh, of imbalances between supply and demand. And yep. so if you were to look at, um, if you were to be on the inside and look at a number of our models, you'll see that the price compression that's occurred, not that it wasn't in the model, we just didn't have it happening so fast. We didn't think it would go from say $3,800 down to $2,000 in six months. We might've had that going down 12 to 18 months in, in our modeling. Um, but it was uh, it was always something we expected because it's a natural part of how these industries evolve. It is a natural part, you know, as is the cyclical nature of interest rates. People have become really um, used to low interest, which is abnormal. And how how has that affected you from the perspective of raising capital? Because you have money deployed already in the market at one rate. The rates are different now. The expectations are different. Yeah, we raised um, $90 million in a credit facility last summer. Um, okay. We disclosed that our pricing on that is fixed rate for the first three years at a 5.65% coupon and then rates right. thereafter for the mm -hmm. remaining two years. It's a five-year facility. Um, and in fact, when, when we were out looking for that capital from the banks, 
um, they really focused on the underwriting and they focused on the quality and the investments that we've made. Um, and so when we look at that rise in interest rates, um, we feel pretty comfortable having that fixed rate portfolio, excuse me, the fixed rate facility in place um, to be able to moderate, uh, or I should say, not be impacted by the rising rate environment. Now, where the rising rate environment is having an impact is what do we charge for our capital? That's a big right. question mark, right? So if we're in a world where the two year is going to go to make it up, say 7%, I'm not saying that that's where it's going, but if the two year goes to 7%, well, maybe we're supposed to be charging a lot more for our capital. If the two year is going to go to 3%, um, long-term, maybe we should charge less than if it was at seven. And so one of the other reasons we've been out of the market is we're looking at markets, we're looking at yields, and we're trying to make sure that we price our capital appropriately. Yeah, that's it's a really tricky balance right now. Um, you know, in some ways, it's a different balance than it was two years ago in terms of the factors that have to be looked at. Um, Anthony, we do have to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment with Anthony Canelio from New Lake Capital Partners. I'm Richard Zwicky on The Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on the Green Peak with Anthony Canelio of New Lake Kaplan. Anthony, you know, we're, before the break, we're chatting a bit about the EBITDA and the changing markets. And how do you, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. And interest rates are as likely to stop rising, go up, go down. You know, obviously, it's going to do one of those things. In Canada, they've stopped raising them. Uh, they've put a pause on it because the rest of the economy is just too good in the right ways to keep raising them and try and slow it down without hurting the average person, um, which of course is affecting people's ability to buy homes, maintain homes and build their asset base. From a business perspective, it also affects a lot of the decision-making process. And it's not just do the interest rates go up and down, it's the security of that property over time because its value to the operator changes. How are you looking at it differently or how are you seeing operators look at it differently? Yeah, I um, when I look at the operators, a higher rate environment is telling me that inflation is uh, persisting. And the way we see that impacting yep. operators is um, reducing the basket size that a consumer is spending in the dispensary um, and purchasing. And so we did see some unit growth in 2022, but we actually saw a greater moderation in, in overall sales dollar growth. So what is that telling us uh, underlying this, this environment of inflation? People are buying just as much, if not more, but they're trading down to lower price points in order to be able to buy that. And that's typical across most industries, right? You see a lot more people always spend the same. They just buy more of a little stuff as opposed to large items during a uh, price compression. Yes. And, and the corollary is to the alcohol segment, yep. alcohol and beer segment. We did a lot of work a couple of years ago thinking about this industry's performance in a recessionary environment. Um, and we certainly did see that. What inflation did on top of kind of that recessionary environment is um, it impacted what is available in the wallet of the typical cannabis consumer. There are a number of studies out there about the uh, average income of the cannabis consumer. It's trends on the lower side. This is a consumer that's most impacted by fuel and energy and uh, food increase uh, price increases. So they just have less disposable income. Um, so that's certainly a headwind for the operator. How it changes for us 
Again, when we focus on these limited license states, we believe that the cannabis industry is in this long-term secular growth trend, and we will go through these series of ebbs and flows, but we think fundamentally there will be demand there for cannabis, and we want to make sure we're partnering with the operators that can um, not only deliver what the customer wants from a, from a from a customer delivery perspective, but also that can operate the business in a world where we know those margins will be compressed. And we want to make sure we have tenants that can operate um, just as well at, at eight or $1,200 a pound as they can at 2000 or 3000 a pound. And so that changes materially in your decision process, the type of business that you choose to work with. Because if it were somebody coming in that's going to be an operator looking really to target the high end of the market, you'd have greater uncertainty than you would for somebody who's looking for a broad range, broad spectrum product. Well, yeah, it, it depends because at the very high end, just like you see in high end, uh, uh, whether it be a luxury good or even in the alcohol and tobacco space, the very high end products, uh-huh. the average income for those consumers tends to be higher and less impacted by recession. Yep. So if you're really delivering a premium product, you can potentially hold on to that premium pricing. Um, but not everybody that has a premium product can hold on to it because are they really delivering the premium value? Um, right. So that's part of the underwriting. That's part of the analysis. It would be. And, you know, so taking it now, taking it back more into the properties and the buildings, um, as as these trends go, a lot of times you end up with <clears throat> empty locations. I'm not saying you do. I say the market does. Um, how do you, you know, you never know which one's going to be. If we all did, we never would build a building in the wrong location. But with the market being where it is, that has to be part of your planning as well. Do you see those as an opportunity because as the market turns, it's going to surge? Or are you really looking to see what you can avoid and just let the rest of the market figure it out? No, it's it's part of underwriting the transaction, making sure we understand the property situation in the cannabis ecosystem. Will this property be utilized for the next 10, 15, 20 years within the cannabis world? Um, and feeling comfortable about it. So as an example, we've looked at properties in an unlimited license jurisdiction of, I call it Los Angeles or San Francisco, where we've said, if this business were to experience difficulty, would anybody care about this particular property? Um, And so we haven't executed those transactions. So it's really about the property, but we also look at the alternative use. We look at the non-cannabis value of that property. So a lot of times people believe that the cultivation facilities, and I should say that we are 100% leased. We do have 16 cultivation facilities uh, and, uh, no, I'm sorry, 15 cultivation, 17 retail uh, dispensary mm-hmm. locations. Um, and people believe that these retail locations, excuse me, that these cultivation locations are in the middle of nowhere. Well, in fact, if you were to look at our properties on a map, you'd find that many of them are located within what's called a loop. There's usually a, a, a loop around a city. Um, in fact, if you look at our Phoenix location, our fee, it's a very, very hot market and value of that property that we purchased a year and a half ago and we're doing a built to suit on is significantly higher today than when we purchased it. When we have properties around uh, inside the loop around Boston and around Chicago, uh, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Um, right. So we're also looking for those opportunities where there's alternative use, um, not just uh, good cannabis use. And so tell me a bit about the alternative use decision process, making process. I mean, have you come to a situation yet where you've been forced to 
choose an alternative use for one of the buildings? No, we've we've not. Um, we have two. You're forced <laughs> Not good. No, we have um, we have two situations that we announced on our recent earnings call. Um, one where we've allowed a tenant uh, to go to weekly payments. The company restructured. It's in Pennsylvania. They restructured last summer. Management team's done a great job right sizing. Uh, it's an independent in in Pennsylvania, which has its own level of issues. Right. Um, in competing with the large MSOs there, that team has done a great job of managing the business. They've been able to pay all of their rent. We've just matched cash flow. So there's that situation that we continue to monitor. Um, and then we have a situation in Massachusetts where the tenant had some unfortunate series of situations, not getting some adult use dispensaries open, having some cultivation issues, which took large amounts of product offline, created some what we think are short-term cash flow opportunities. But when we look at that Massachusetts market, we believe that there's a real business there. It's back to the EBITDA discussion yep. I was talking about. We look at other operators in Massachusetts that have three adult use dispensaries and similarly situated cultivation facilities. And we think that's a business that actually makes sense. So we're being a partner. We're working with them um, to try to find uh, find a way to the other side of this, uh, what we think is a temporary issue for them. But no, we've not had to look to replace anybody at this point in time. Um, because we think the properties that we own have good EBITDA coverages and um, will be utilized in the cannabis sector. Right. That, that's a great position to be in. So you you mentioned, you know, the markets you're in. There's markets you're not in. Are there any that you look at and are really concerned about how it's going, how they're going to operate in the next couple of years? Well, sure. I think New York's the poster child for that one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of concern about the state getting that right. Um, yep. It's a difficult situation. We don't have any exposure in New York. We certainly have looked at lots of transactions there, but it's really difficult to underwrite that market with um, with watching how the regulatory construct has, has evolved or, quite frankly, hasn't evolved. Um, I think that uh, California continues to have its issues, and hopefully California can get its its act together. Um but uh, you know, every state has its idiosync, uh, its idio- idiosyncrasies. <laughs> idiosyncrasies. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, it's a tough one. <laughs> um, that it has to deal with, uh, and you know, we're just going to continue to monitor it. Yeah, no, I think that's all you can do in many cases. It's just, and I'd like to come back to New York after we take one more break, but we'll be back in a moment with Anthony Canelio from New Lake Capital on the Green Peak. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. And we're back on The Green Peak with Anthony Canelio from New Lake Capital. And Anthony, just before the break, we are chat. You mentioned about New York and California. And California, being one of the oldest jurisdictions, is still struggling in to get certain aspects of the market right. And New York, one of the newer ones, is generally recognized to be a mess. Do you see that going? that's going to change in the near term or is it just too messed up right now? The market's really going to have to, the market forces are going to cl- have to clean itself out over a couple of years. I think that is, um, I unfortunately think it's going to take longer uh, than shorter to, to fix that market. I think the um, the illicit market has had too much of an opportunity to entrench itself into the community. And I think from a political perspective, while there's a lot of strong talk uh, in the city and in Albany about 
cleaning up that illicit market and making it a better environment for the legal operators. I think two things. I think number one, politically, it's just going to be really, really difficult for them to um, put people in jail for selling marijuana when they're talking about legalizing because you shouldn't be putting people in jail for selling marijuana. Um, yeah. So I think politically, that's going to be really difficult. They're trying to take some very targeted actions and hopefully, in their opinion, get a ripple effect. I don't think that'll be successful. Um, and so therefore, I think they're going to I think they're just going to wait too long to take strong actions, kind of similar to what happened in California, where they just, you know, this issue persisted for five years, seven years, 10 years. Yeah, um, it has persisted. And it's, you know, I mean, California, unfortunately, has the situation where they had 5,000 producers issued 500 licenses. The other 4,500 didn't stop, right? The government just didn't manage right from that end through to the consumer. There was a lot of will, you know, wishful thinking along the way. But California being one of the largest producers out or such a massive producer is a bit different than New York, which, you, as you said, it's got its, you know, the black market operating, it's entrenched. The economics are very, very different. And from the pressure point, where do you see a successful point of control? And I mean control in a good sense in New York coming into play. Is it going to be that there's going to be, you know, the supply end is going to get straightened out or logistics? We know retail is not going to be there for a while. Yeah, I think on the supply end, um, it's a very capital intensive business. And in this environment, it's really, really difficult, as we all know, to raise capital. And so I think you're going to continue to see the state somewhat constrained on the supply side um, because of the lack of capital availability for new entrants to get their business up and running. And so I think you'll see the ROs, those top 10, the original 10, I think yep. you'll see the ROs continue to supply the market. And I think the big issue is going to be, can the state get the dispensaries open? But with the tax structure that's in place, it's going to be really difficult for the legal channel to come to compete effectively from a price perspective with the illicit channel. Um, and so I think you'll continue to see a very, very strong illicit market until New York can allow uh, can not only shut down as much illicit product as possible, but can create a construct that attracts more capital to create more capacity, allowing the price to come down to really be competitive. Yeah. So, Anthony, we. You know, we are going to be running out of time shortly, but I wanted to end with one question. It doesn't have to be cannabis related. What's keeping you up at night? When you look forward over the next couple of years, what are you thinking about? Yeah, uh, I don't sleep much. <laughs> we worry about neither. everything. Me neither. <laughs> we worry about everything. But, um, you know, we're here in mid-March and we're currently going through a lot of banking um morass and you know what worries about what worries me for the industry is being a federally illegal business that, that most people have figured out banking by now um but will their deposits really be guaranteed by the government i get a little worried about access to capital access to banking and how this could impact the cannabis business being a federally illegal business and making sure that um the hard raised and hard earned capital of not just our tenants, but the entire industry is safeguarded. Um, so that's kind of where we're spending a lot of our brain power right now. Well, everybody might be going and investing in vaults and you're going to need to lease out more space to hold vaults. 
<laughs> we'll JV that with you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anthony, I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Peak this week. Thank you for having me. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening. We'll be back again with you soon. I'm Richard Zwicky. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.